as we get ready to pray, I wanted to mention a number of us know and love Ed Johnson and Benita Martin, both in different nursing homes right now, and so many of us have been planning to go and visit them, but because of a rise in different sicknesses in the area, a lot of the nursing homes are shutting down. And so people have to eat in their rooms. Some of the things that they were looking forward to, which is talking with other people and seeing other people they don't get to do. And so one of the ways that we as a church can minister to them, because they can feel not only isolated in a nursing home, but then even more isolated because they've got to stay in one or a rehab unit. They have to stay even more isolated. I wanted to ask and encourage our church to find ways to reach out, especially with phone calls. Because imagine having to sit in one room alone uh, without visitors for days on end during these, uh, another outbreak of sickness in the nursing home. So as we pray for them, let's pray and ask God for the sickness to go away so they can open back up, but also find ways to reach out to them so they don't feel so lonely, making their sickness even worse. Let's pray. God, as we come today, we remind each other of your goodness in the past to us. You have shown yourself kind to us in many different ways, causing the rain to fall and causing uh, love and kindness in our lives. You've been kind to us in the past in sending people to share the good news of the gospel with us. And so as we remind ourselves of that, we ask today, God, that you would do that again in our lives. Some of us are walking hard roads that feel like you are disciplining us again. God, I pray that you would show us your kindness and your love that you would allow us to walk out of the, the darkness and the difficulty. Pray that you would remind us in our own our experience that your love and faithfulness are for us, not against us. God, I pray that your peace would come over your, us again, that, Lord, we would be able to walk with joy. You have said that the life you have called us to is a life of gladness and of joy, and so I pray for the for us, that you would give us joy, that you would fill us again with that. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see where your faithfulness is all around us. It can be so easy because of anxiety, because of doubt, because of fear, because of despair and discouragement to miss all of those things. And so I pray, God, that you would give us special eyes to not be blind to your kindness to us. God, I pray today that you will remind us again that you will give us what is good. You, a good father, promised that you will do good to us and not harm us. And so I pray that you would remind us again that you will do that. God, I pray, do pray for Ed and Benita today as they are uh, in the nursing homes, rehab units. I, God, I pray that you would give them peace we got to pray that you would keep sickness away from these homes where there are so many people that are vulnerable uh, to all sorts of kinds of illnesses. They're trying to recover from one, and then they're threatened by another. And God, I pray that you would give Ed and Benita a peace where they're at, that you would remind them, that you would give them good care, that you would give them attentive staff. God, I pray that you would um, restore them to their homes soon and quickly. God, we pray for Dave and Missy as he is still battling cancer, and uh, he, he also has to be isolated. God, I pray that you would be working in his spirit just as you work in his body. I pray that you would, be giving, that you would give Missy a peace that passes what she understands, that you would remind them both that you love them and that you will do good to them because you promise to do good to your people. 
God, we, I pray today for teachers and students and administrators and teachers' aides and cafeteria staff and parents in our church as, the, as students in this area are starting school this week and in the coming weeks. God, I pray that this year that you would use the teachers, that you would use the workers in the school, the administrators, that you would use all of these things to help students love you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray that, we, you, would, that you would protect our students. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, give great wisdom and patience to the teachers and the teachers' aides. pray that you would help them to reach students in their minds and in their hearts. We know there is a long history of education driving discipleship. And so I pray that that would happen in this area and among our teachers and among our students. And I pray, Lord, your, your wisdom and care and parents as they walk with their kids and raise them in the Lord, I pray that you would give to the parents great patience and great strength and great encouragement in the gospel this coming school year. God, I pray for our missionaries in Jamaica, the Coolies. I pray, Lord, there's a long history of missionaries to Jamaica. And Jamaica is again at a point where they need gospel-preaching churches. And so as they are there helping to strengthen and disciple believers in a church in Jamaica, and they share with us all of the different challenges that attack the church from the outside, I pray, Lord, that you would today give them a deeper and deeper love for you. Pray that you would give them eyes to see where you are at work, not to be overwhelmed with discouragement where Satan is at work around them. I pray, Lord, that you would give them uh, endurance. Pray that you would protect their hearts, help them to minister, not just speaking the word of God, but living the word of God so that their lives match the words that they speak. And God, I pray that the seeds they plant and the seeds that they water and the fruit that they harvest will uh, increase. And God, I pray for the churches that are around us here in this area without pastors. Many churches in Scott County and the communities around us that this week are struggling to find a preacher to preach God's word to the people. My God, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them, that you know and love and see those little churches searching for pastors. God, I pray that you would raise up workers for the harvest to see that, the, that this, is a, this is a wonderful and needed place to share the gospel and do gospel ministry. I pray, God, that these churches would become lights in a dark place so that in all of these places where there can be biker bars, there can also be thriving churches where God is worshipped and honored and loved. God, and as, we, uh, as we come here and we sing and we hear scripture and we listen to the sermon, God, I pray that you would use all of these to help us become fully mature followers of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was 19 or 20, I was driving across the state of Mississippi. I had a nine-hour drive that day, and all of a sudden, every light on my dashboard lit up at the same time. 
And I, I remember what it looked like. I don't remember the town, but I'm on the interstate, still about five hours, four or five hours from where I'm headed. And I was like, is this the kind of light that you can keep driving with, or is this the kind of light you need to get checked out right now? I'm like, I don't, you know, this is all the lights going off at the same time in the middle of nowhere where I don't know anybody. I mean, I have a cell phone, but I mean, you can't find where's the nearest uh, mechanic shop and where do I go. So, but the car's still running. So I go ahead until I find the next exit that looks like it's going to have something. And I take the exit and I see that there's an auto parts store. And I'm like, let's just find out, hey, can you run the diagnostics and figure out what these lights mean? Can I go the rest of the way and get some work done? You know, is this a big deal or not? And so I pull in. I say, hey, can you check this out and give me an idea? Like, do I need to go get this checked out now or can I finish my trip? And we pop the hood. And I still don't, I'm 20 years old. I don't know what I'm looking at anyway. But we pop the hood and the guy, he grabs, the, he's got the computer in his hand. And he goes, your belt broke. That's why all your lights went off. Like, we don't need to run this diagnostic. Like, the, the belt broke. And uh, so I was like, okay, well, is there a mechanic shop I can go to? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we go around the corner, and uh, we get it fixed. No big deal. I'm back on the road within an hour. And uh, I was thinking of that story this week because I can pop the hood, but I needed somebody else to come and be like, oh, that broke right there. That's your issue right there. I'm, I mean, I can look and go, oh, yeah, there's dust under here and smoke, and this is an engine that leaks. I knew that part. But I needed somebody from the outside to come and say, well, there's your problem. Because I'm like blind to the thing that's right in front of me. I don't know how many times in your life you find yourself. Sometimes it's kind of funny and humorous, at least it is to me, when I go to the refrigerator and I'm like, honey, where's the ketchup? I'm like, I don't see it anywhere in the refrigerator. And she's like, it's on the shelf, you know. Maybe you're like that. Like, hey, where is, do we have milk? Yes, it's all. You need somebody sometimes from the outside to say, here's your problem. But sometimes we're blind to the big issues. Sometimes we're blind to the, 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 the real, we think, oh, the problem is my boss. I just need a different boss. I just, I, it's them. I, I need, you, God, if you'll fix my wife, then everything's going to be okay. And we need somebody to come in from the outside and say, you cannot see what's happening. You are blind to the thing that's right in front of you. Today, we're going to be looking at a passage where God sends a prophet to Judah and says, you don't see your problem. You don't see your problem. This is it. It's that hose. It's that belt. It's not that relationship. It's you. Go ahead and turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. Today we're going to be in verses 1 to 8. Last week we saw that God sent Zephaniah and he spoke in basically a circle to the people around Judah. And he says, Philistines, this is what you have done. Moabites, this is what you've done. Ethiopians, this is what you have done. Assyrians, this is what you've done. And the whole time Israel's like, get them. Judah's like, get them. That's right, Zephaniah. Look at those guys. Look at how bad our neighbors are. And then in Zephaniah chapter 3, this is what we get. 
Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. And every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. Verse 6, I have destroyed nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Verse 8, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, help us to receive it as the very word of God. Open our eyes and ears so that we can see wonderful things in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Here, when God turns his attention to Judah and says, Judah, You are the problem. What God is calling to us here through that is to stop looking at ourselves to save us and start looking to God to save us. Here, Zephaniah, God through Zephaniah is calling to us and says, look to God to save you. Stop trying to save yourselves. I want to show you from this three actions to looking to God from Zephaniah chapter 3. First, we see... It says, hold God's law as high as he does. Look at verses 1 to 5. This is where God has been condemning the people around Judah, and they say, yep, look at those sinners. Look at the prostitutes. Look at the swindlers. Look at the thieves. Look at the corrupt. Look at those that persecute others. And God says, woe to the city of oppressors. Judah at that point is going, yeah, yeah. That city of oppressors, gosh, God, I hate those oppressors. God says, rebellious and defiled. And and Judah says, yep, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. And Judah goes, oh, you're talking about us. You see, Lord is the covenant name of God. This is not a name that Assyria would know. This is Israel's special name. And he says, you have lowered the law so that you just point out the prostitutes. You just point out those that steal and murder and kill. You just think it's the terrorists. And God says, Judah, look in the mirror. You do not trust me, Judah, he says. He describes them as rebellious, defiled, and oppressive. He doesn't define them by what you and I might say, oh, here's the list of sins we're not supposed to do. God says, you do not trust me, Judah. Then God starts walking through a list 
And he says, her officials, verse 4, her prophets, verse 4, her priests. God says, the people that are supposed to lead and shepherd you, they're like lions who devour. They're like rulers that use other people for their own advantage. They're prophets. Maybe your translation says, her prophets are fickle. Eh, this way and that way. They are treacherous people leading God's people astray. Those that are supposed to lead them to God, instead lead them away. He says, her priests, instead of making the place where God meets with his people holy, instead they profane it. And instead of holding the law of God up, he says they profane, they do violence to the law of God. He, con- he says, Judah, your leaders are so messed up. He doesn't say, Judah, your leaders visit brothels and are murdering. He says they don't trust the Lord. They're the ones who are like evening wolves who manipulate other people for their own advantage. And he says they know no shame, but verse 5 says, the Lord within her is righteous. He does, he does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice, and every new day he does not fail, yet the unrighteous know no shame. Here, God holds this standard above Judah and says, stop looking at your neighbors. Stop looking at everybody else and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. And he says, Judah, look in the mirror. You are the problem. The question for you and I, I think, today is, is our standard for us as high as God's standard for us? Is my standard for Joe as high as God's standard for Joe? Is God's standard for you, is your standard for you as high as God's standard for you? Or do you go, well, I'm a better husband than that guy. My thoughts are purer than his thoughts. I'm not as bad a mom as she is, so I must be okay. I'm more honest than somebody else. Is your standard for you as high as God's standard for you? Because the, the, what God is calling Judah to do is to say, stop looking at everybody else and hold God's law as high as he does. I remember a Sunday about 10 years ago now, and my pastor at the time, John Bricker, said, your standard for you I'm sorry, he said, God's standard for you is higher than your wife's standard for you. And I was like, no, John. Like, and I'm now kind of ashamed to say that. I mean, I, I kind of say it a little, like, a little bit laughing. I would not have said that out loud. I was polite. I was well-behaved. I wouldn't have, I don't think, I don't think I said this to Emma, but I remember sitting there and John said, God's standard for you is higher than your wife's standard for you. And I was like, no, John, that's not true. That's not true. And it rung in my ears because I had lowered God's standard in my life and thought, well, I'm a pretty good husband and a pretty good father. I'm a pretty good church, per, church member. I'm pretty good at, as a Bible study. I'm pretty good in all of these different ways. God must be happy with me. And over a period of months, John and I, we actually still laugh about it now. He and I talk regularly, and he needles me about it because I admitted it to him. I didn't think he was right. But it took a season until finally I began to go, oh, God, your standard for me 
is does Joe trust in the Lord? Does Joe draw near to the Lord? Not does he do some dishes and help out and try to listen to his wife and take her on dates and do a few different things. God's standard for me is not do I do a little bit of discipline here and there with my kids, but do I love the Lord with all my heart and give my whole heart and obedience to Him expressed in me being a father? It took a season for, for, me, for John to help me see that God's law in my life is higher than my law for my life. So I wonder for you today, if you're sitting here and you go, God's law is higher than my law for me. That's the first step to looking to God because as long as we think God's okay with what we do, what we think, how we talk, how we treat people, and what our motives are, then we have no reason to look to Him. But it's only when we begin to hold the law of God as high as He does that we begin to say, God, can You help me? God, can You save me? Can You change me? So the first action to looking to God from this passage is hold God's law as high as he does. Second way, looking to God. Despair of your ability to keep it. Look at verses 6 and 7. God says, I have destroyed nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all of my punishments come upon her. God says, this is what I have done and am doing. And look at the end of verse 7. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. After everything God had done for Judah and in Judah to get their attention, it was not enough. It wasn't enough. This has been the problem that Israel has had throughout the Bible. Judah doesn't care. If Judah ever cared, the Bible would have stopped when they did. If Judah ever cared, then when God gave the law through Moses, they would have just obeyed and, okay, we're good to go. If God got their attention in the book of Judges, we wouldn't have the need for the rest of the Bible. If David comes along and leads the people in righteousness, we're done. And yet at every point, Judah, God's trying to get their attention. And a message from the outside is not fixing the brokenness on the inside. A message on the inside to Judah doesn't fix the brokenness. Because the point of the Bible is is ultimately, Judah, you cannot do this. I can wipe, God says, I can wipe out nation after nation around you. And Judah, it doesn't fix the issue. Because the issue isn't the nations around you, it's your hearts. We're getting close to the end of the Old Testament, which which means God's about done telling that message. The Old Testament has been repeatedly making this point. Judah, your brokenness is inside. Israel, your brokenness is not your parents, it's you. It's not your brother, it's you. And up, up to this point, God is like, you, Israel, you disobey. And now you cannot solve this. So, despair of saving yourself. 
You see, I think that becoming a Christian and Christian growth start at this place. I think that we're not ready to really receive Christ until by the Holy Spirit we come to a point where we say, I cannot save me. I can't save me. I had a pastor once who said, this was my pastor growing up, he would say, I don't think anybody comes to Christ outside of a crisis. Because until you get into a crisis, you think you can fix it. And God says, when you reach the end of yourself, then Jesus becomes good news. And so, but not only does we become a Christian through this moment of despair of ourselves, but also I think the place of Christian growth is when we stop saying, well, if I just read my Bible a little bit more, if I just had an accountability partner, if I just had this or just did this or just tried a little bit more, it's when we despair of ourselves and say, God, can you change me from the inside out that we actually get changed? You see, that's ultimately the story of Peter. The Apostle Peter, the disciple of Jesus, he walked with Jesus and he knew all the right answers and he was headstrong and he was enthusiastic and he said, Jesus, I will die for you. But it wasn't until he denied Jesus, abandoned Jesus and reached the end of himself and he realized, I cannot do this. That I think the beginning of Peter walking with Jesus started. It wasn't until he realized, I cannot do this. I've never been able to do this. You see, I think it's glaring for those of us with young children. Maybe you've had young children or you're a teacher. It's easy for us to go through and say, you disobeyed me. The point here is for you to learn to try harder. It's easy when we're raising kids to be, to be thinking, here, like, like Israel, like Judah, you disobey. What you need is to just try harder. But what we find here in the book of Zephaniah is that whether we're raising children and trying to help them learn to love righteousness and want to obey, that never starts until we reach the point of despair. And so the point with our kids is to say, I know what it's like to want something so much you're willing to sin to get it. And I couldn't fix that desire in me. And that's where Jesus comes in. It's not until we get to this point where we despair of our ability to keep God's law that we'll actually look outside of ourselves for help and ho- uh, help in the Holy Spirit, for the righteousness of Jesus and a new life to allow us to obey God. Until we reach that point of despair, we will be like Judah, like the Pharisees, really, who came after this, who said, if we just had more laws, we would be okay. If we just made more rules, we would be okay. If we could just convince our neighbors to be like us, we would be okay. But God, through Zephaniah, is calling to Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, you are still eager to act corruptly in all that you do because your hearts are corrupt. So this point, despair of your ability to keep the law of God. We go, okay, well, where's the good news? Where does this go from here? The third action to looking to God from this passage is look to God for his salvation. Look at verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for, I, for the day I will stand up to testify. 
I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. I think there are two notes in that first line, wait for me. I think there's a little bit of sarcasm that says, Israel, just wait. But I think there's also a note of hope in that, where he says, you have never been able to do it, so wait for me. Israel, wait until I come and fix this and save you. Manchester, wait for me. When you reach that point of despair over your ability to keep the law of God, wait for me. You cannot do it. Look to me who can fix this issue. This is a call. If we want to keep the law of God, which we should, but we despair of our ability to keep it, then we must look to the God who can somehow be both just and merciful. Somehow the God who can be both just and merciful. I think that you and I will never make progress in the Christian life until we begin to look to Him to supply what He requires of us. As long as we're good enough and can try harder and our upbringing and our efforts and our morals and our everything, and as long as we're good enough, then we're never going to make progress. But until we say, God, you have called me to this law, now make me love it and give me the power to do it. Until we reach that point, I don't think we're ever going to make the progress that God requires in the Christian life. If God has called husbands to love their wives and lay down their lives for their wives until we say, God, give me the power to do what you require, I don't think we will actually do it. If you're a parent, I don't think that we will ever raise our children in the fear of the Lord until we begin to say, God, can you give me the power to do what you've required me to do? If, if we're going to be the kind of church people I mean that in a good sense. Church members who love each other and sacrifice for each other and and show compassion to one another and reach our community. If we're ever going to make progress in that, I don't think that we're ever going to do it until we say, God, this is what you have called. Now give us the, the new hearts to let us do that. You see, Zephaniah just ends on this note of therefore wait for me. Therefore, wait for me. The Lord is going to have to be the one to do it. He doesn't even say, this is what the Lord is going to do. It's a a moment that judgment will one day come, but God says, wait for me. There is this, in this term of judgment, wait for me. Watch what I'm going to do. It leaves this glimmer of hope. God, if we wait for you, can you do it? It's what Nineveh believed when Jonah came to them. Remember, Jonah was just told to go and tell them the the judgment of God is coming. Jonah wasn't told, give them five steps to reform their society and change their lives. Jonah was just sent to say, Judah, your sin has found you out and you will be judged. And yet the Ninevites said, perhaps God will show us mercy And so they fasted and they tore their clothes and they said, God, you are right. Can you have mercy on us? And God did show mercy on them. Even though they had no idea, no no, uh, 
There was no message that said, do this and God will do this. They just said, God, can you show us mercy? I think that is the message that Israel is supposed to get here. As they're called, stop looking to your neighbors and stop looking to yourself. Look to God to save you and look to Him. Wait for Him and for His salvation. Wait for Him to do it. So this this section of Zephaniah calls us to look to God to save us. But what gives us the promise that God will save us. Israel, Judah is standing there saying, God, can you have mercy on me? What allows us to believe and know in our hearts God will have mercy on us? Maybe you're here and you say, okay, Joe, I get it. I'm not good enough. God's jealous anger is for me. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 puts this this way. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. I think that's what Zephaniah is doing. It's making us conscious of our sin, that we can't save ourselves, that not trusting in the Lord and drawing near to to our God is the heart of our rebellion against Him. So what will we find if we do? If we wait for him, what are we going to find? Romans 3, 21 to 24 answers it. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus. What you couldn't do, Jesus did. And that is your story today if you're in Christ. Today, that's you, completely righteous. The law has been kept. Zephaniah 3 doesn't stand against you anymore. You you despair of yourself, you look to Jesus, and you find the law is completely kept. Now you can live free. That wonderful law of God for you as a husband, as a parent, that wonderful law that stands against you and says, look at what you've made a mess of, is no longer hanging hanging over you. You get to stand on the law of God this week as a steady and sure foundation. So that no matter what this week holds, Zephaniah 3 doesn't apply to you anymore. Go free. But maybe you're here and you say, Joe, you said that's your story if you're in Christ. You say, I am not in Christ. I know that God's law is for me. It condemns me in my heart. How can I be saved? How can Zephaniah 3 not apply to me anymore? The Bible says that all of us have sinned and rebelled against God. All of us have said, God, you will not be an authority over me. The Bible calls that that rebellion sin. Not sins, sin. And it is sin that causes us physical death and eternal death in hell forever. But the good news of the Bible that Romans 3 was just describing is that Jesus came and lived the life that we should live, died the death that we should die, and rose to life so that now the law of God doesn't condemn us, 
It condemned Jesus. And now we get to go free in the righteousness of Christ. And so for you, that can become yours through repentance and faith. Repentance means a changing of the mind, a turning away from sin and rebellion, and trusting in Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And following Him. If that's you, come and grab me. Let me know today. You say, today I want that story to be mine. Today I want no more Zephaniah 3 over me. Let today be the day of salvation for you. So this passage calls to Judah and calls to you and I and says, stop looking to yourself and the people around you. Look to God to save you. I want you to imagine what changes in your daily life. I mentioned what, what changes in just, just you. If instead of moment by moment, your life was you trying to stack up good works, Instead, you say, I am standing on the good works of Jesus today. Imagine what changes in your heart. Maybe you're a parent. And you go, I get to parent from the perfect record of Jesus. Not for the perfect record Jesus commands. I want you to imagine. Maybe you have aging parents and it's hard Maybe they're in a nursing home. They're getting medical care. It's, it's hard day by day, and you're like, I feel like I'm failing in so many different ways. Imagine what changes in your heart when you stop looking to how do I manage this situation, and you say, I'm going to stand on the record of Jesus and let God do the saving here. Imagine what changes in your home when your home is not a place where you display to the world how perfect you have made it, but it's just a place where sinners get to stand on the record of Jesus together. Sounds like a good news kind of home. Imagine what changes in our church. When we don't look to each other to save us, We don't look to our strategy. We don't look to our history. We don't look to our plans for the future. We don't look to our leaders. When our salvation comes from the God who says, wait for me. Sounds like a a hopeful, good news, confident kind of church. Let's pray. God, as we, we hear you call, wait for me. I pray that we would be a people that do, that we wouldn't be satisfied with anything else. In Jesus' name, amen.